0: Our scripture reading this our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19 uh, verses forty one through chapter twenty verse two. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative. Why, then, are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at, at all the, at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David we also have more than you. Why, then, did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel." Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite, and he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, we just come before you this morning. I just pray that the service um, is all about you um, and not about us. Lord, I just pray that you would be with Mark. um, Speak through him, that it would be your words and not his. um, That you would give us uh, humble hearts and open minds um, to receive your word this morning and that we would grow closer to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, as I had mentioned
1: earlier, um, we have been gone. Uh, we're gone last week, and so Eddie D'Souza filled in. Uh, it's the first time I think he's been here to fill in. And um, if you have not listened to his sermon yet, it is really, really good. I'm totally going to steal um, the uh, glorious peekaboo. That's how we ended. It was, it was so good. And just great to have this great visual. Um, so if you haven't listened to it yet, go go on the website. You can you can get on a, the podcast and stuff and, and listen to that too. It was it was absolutely excellent. And uh, he did text me that afternoon, Sunday afternoon, and appreciated everybody, um, the how welcoming that we were to his his family, and um, and so it's always it's always nice to hear as a pastor that your people love other people too, and uh, you're not too critical of those who come in and fill, you know for me, and hopefully he wasn't as good. No, I'm not going to say it. That sounds terrible. No, I'm going to move on before I dig myself a hole. Anyway, so today we're continuing in 2 Samuel, and if you've been with us, we started in 1 Samuel. We work all the way through. We're almost to the end of Second Samuel, and we do that with everything. We just pick a book of the Bible. We start working through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We don't skip anything uh, because it's all there. It's all the Word of God. He gave it to us for a reason, Um, and so hopefully as we progress through the book of Samuel specifically in this case, we're starting to see a pattern of God working in the midst of his people, David's sin and how he's using David's sin to glorify himself eventually, even through all the hardships, to see David's example to us of what faithfulness to God looks like even in the midst of suffering the consequences of sin. But ultimately, ultimately, all that is true, but ultimately at the, the, the peak of the meaning of the book of Samuel, um, instead of going, well, what does this mean to us, which is good to do, ultimately what it does is it points us to who is God and how are we as God's people to relate to him what is he revealing about himself to us what is he calling for us to change or to be to remind us of who he is because we can get lost in this society in our world of who we are what our identity is it is in christ it is not in him and so in in ourselves and so david is the anointed king of the lord christ is the anointed king ultimately of the lord and so it all points to him the people of Israel, Judah and Israel today together, are us as the church. The Gentiles in 2 Samuel, First and 2 Samuel, are the unbelieving world. And so if we jump directly to us without realizing that what, what is trying to be said through all of this, we are not David. We talked about this with, with David and Goliath, right? We like to say, well, we can, we can fight any giant in our life. Well, we're not David. If anything, we're the Israelites cowering behind David because we need the king to come up and fight for us. And he does. So as we work through today, because the danger of, of first and 2 Samuel, the Old Testament specifically, is that we can take it and make it legalistic. Legalistic in the sense of, well, if you just did this, then... God would be pleased with you, and he will save you. Because today, specifically, you know, spoiler alert, today is about rebellion. Today is about what happens to those who rebel against the king. And so you could take that and say, well, then I just won't rebel against the king. The problem with that is that we've already rebelled against the king. (laughs) And the whole point of Christ's coming is to save us from our rebellion. So don't jump to, don't read these, hear these words, and then jump immediately to legalism. Like, I gotta be a good person in order for God to save me. Okay, I'm giving the ending away, okay? This is horrible. My, my seminary professor would hate this. This is the ending, okay? The ending is he saved us while we were still rebellious enemies of him. That's where we're going today. So when you hear all of these characters, when you hear what's going on inside Ins and outs. We don't have all the answers to everything. When we're looking at all these different relationships, we have to understand ultimately what it's doing is it's pointing to Christ. Okay, so does that make sense? No. Okay. I appreciate not even a head nod. Thank you, Aaron, for one head nod. There was one over here? I missed it, sorry. All right, so a little bit of review because it's been a couple of weeks, right? A little bit of a review of where we've been. So David's son, Absalom, won over the hearts of Israel, and he led a rebellion against his father. Then during the ensuing battle for Israel, Absalom's army is defeated by David's army, and Joab, his commander, kills Absalom, David's son, ending the civil war and leaving David to retake the throne of Israel. Now, that is a super, super, what, three-sentence summary of about five chapters. So, if you're, not, if you're not sure what I'm talking about, I will say, so you know what, if you want to go back while I'm talking, you want to read those five chapters, go, go at it. The word of God is way better than mine, okay? So, but that's a little bit of a background. So then David now, he's on his way back to Jerusalem to retake the throne, and he encounters, and we saw this two weeks ago, he encounters many people who rebelled against him, those who stood against him, those who fought against him. And what does he do? He forgives them. He shows them mercy and lets them live, though because they are traitors, they deserve to die. And then David also encourages his home tribe of Judah, which was kind of talked about this morning when when Luke, or just a few minutes ago when, when Luke read our passage for us, he encourages his home tribe of Judah to bring him back into the city while the elders of Israel continue to argue amongst themselves, what do we do about David? Should we continue to rebel or should we welcome him back? And they're going back and forth and Judah just hears David's words. David says, come get me. And they go, okay. And they just go. And it's this final act of Judah that sets in motion a whole new rebellion. And our chapter this morning reveals not only the consequences of unrepentance, but an unwillingness and an unwillingness to accept the king's mercy, but also the continued consequences of David's own sin against God. So that's that's where we're going. Consequences, the consequences of unrepentant rebellion, because last week we saw rebels who repented. This week it's rebels who will not repent but then also the consequences, continued consequences of David's sin against God from years earlier. And so David re-enters Jerusalem and his troubles are far from over. A man named Sheba takes the opportunity to tap into Israel's resentment against the tribe of Judah. We read it like, "Why, why are you bringing David back? How dare you? They have resentment against Judah, and Sheba taps into that, and he begins a rebellion of his own. And it's a rebellion of which the consequences are going to affect the entire nation, including David himself. So, sometimes we just take this section at a time. I'm going to start in verse 3, and we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. So 2 Samuel chapter 20, starting verse 3, all the way through 26. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, "'Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself.' So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time, set time that had been appointed him." And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do to us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he gets himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went after him Joab's men and the Cherithites and the Pelophites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on, its, on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, it is, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba the son of Bichri, and Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him there. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They set, cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battling. Battering the wall to throw it down then a wise woman called from the city listen Listen tell joab come here that I may speak to him to you And he came near her and the woman said are you joab? And he answered I am Then she said to him listen to the words of your servants and he answered I am listening Then she said they used to say in former times let them but ask counsel at abel and so they settled the matter I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why, why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba the son of Bichri has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. "'And the woman said to Joab, be, "'Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall.' "'Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, "'and they cut off the head of Sheba the son of Bichri "'and threw it out to Joab. "'So I blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the, from the city, "'every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. "'Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel.' And Beniah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of all the Cherethites and the Pelethites, And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilad, was the recorder. And Shiva was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was also David's priest. Who says the Bible's boring? So the first consequence... Of Sheba's rebellion. The first consequence that we see is how easily Israel is swayed to follow him. Sheba is a Benjamite. He's from the same tribe as the former king Saul, so more than likely he has either, he's related to Saul, he's got some sort of stake in Saul's dynasty being king and deposing of David. He's an angry man, let's just put it that way. He's really angry, And he obviously isn't happy that Absalom's rebellion failed, and so he decides to start one of his own. Now, he's called a worthless man. This is an interesting phrase that is actually used in the Old Testament, the exact same word to describe the Canaanites before Israel goes in to the land of Canaan to destroy them. They're called worthless. Eli's sons, back at the beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, And Nabal, the son or the husband of Abigail in 1 Samuel 25. The same word is used to describe all three of those. And it means, obviously, worthless, wicked, and perverse. And when it comes to the sons of Eli, they are called men who did not know God, which means that they did not love, respect, or follow the Lord. Instead, they did as they pleased. They fulfilled their own desires and their own passions. Go back and and read uh, chapter 2 and what Eli's sons did, and you get a hint of why they are called worthless. And so, this is the character of Sheba. This is who he is. He is a worthless man, and when he opens his mouth saying, we have no portion in David. He's actually contradicting what the elders of Israel had just said a few verses earlier, that we have 10 shares in David. And so one would think that Israel would immediately shut him up. What are you doing? We tried this once. Sheba, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. We're, we're part of David. But they, they, don't, they don't do that. He opens his mouth, he speaks falsehood, and he, Israel immediately joins them, joins him. And so they withdraw from David. They flee from him, and it doesn't go very well. <laughs> it doesn't go very well. In fact, so much so that as the men withdraw eventually to follow this worthless man Sheba, it seems like suddenly they fall into the background because now Sheba's all by himself. Now, how easily resentment, the resentment of Israel, and the feelings of being slighted by Judah (sighs) splits the country, splits the nation. That resentment the slight of the feeling of being slighted affects their judgment to where they fall right back into the same place that they were only a month or weeks or days earlier. Their actions here actually foreshadow the future as it will be the 10 tribes of Israel who split split from Judah during the reign of Solomon, David's son, eventually leading to their exile in Assyria. So another consequence, so not only the consequence of Sheba's rebellion on Israel and how easily they are swayed by him, but another consequence of his rebellion is to do with the town of Abel. Now apparently the men of Israel, they, they come to their senses, right? And they flee Sheba. They all go home and they leave, leave Sheba to his own clan, the Bichrites. Knowing that David would send his army to put down his rebellion, he flees smartly. And he flees all the way to the very north, northern border of Israel, taking refuge in a town which had absolutely nothing to do with his rebellion. The innocent inhabitants of Abel find themselves surrounded and laid siege to by David's men. And it's only through the actions of a wise woman that the city is spared. Sheba's rebellion also has a third effect. On Sheba himself. That seems pretty obvious, right? Whatever idealistic goals he had in mind in convincing the men of Israel to join him, and whatever safety he thought he'd find in Abel, they're all thrown out the window when this wise woman speaks to Joab. She says, "'What has the town done to deserve such a siege, especially a town that is peaceable and faithful to the Lord?' What needs to happen, Joab, for us to resolve this, to end the siege, for the town, the town to be restored and to be saved from the destruction that you are planning against it? And Joab's answer is, give a Sheba and everything will be great. And so the people of Abel listen to the wisdom of this woman. They cut off Sheba's head to make sure that he would never be able to rise up again. And he, they throw it over the wall to Joab. And then the army leaves. They just go home. Sheba's rebellion against the Lord's anointed king ends in disaster for him. But without the wisdom of this woman and handing over the unrepentant rebel, the town of Abel too would have been lost. For the church today, believers in Christ, that's who I'm seeking in the church, not just Elm Creek, But all believers that are alive today, those who are saved by grace through faith, for us today as the church, unrepentant rebellion from God has consequences that affect the whole body of Christ. Resentment, so if we just focus on one church, Elm Creek, a local body of believers, resentment, bitterness, and discontentment can easily rule over us. You ever been involved in a church where someone who's a member of that church is bitter and discontent? It spreads like a virus. And maybe initially the, the reason for being bitter, the reason for being discontent might have even been good to a certain degree or right? But then when it continues to stew, it spreads like a virus and in the end can easily destroy the bonds that connect those within the church. And we're not, if we say like, I'm a believer, I'm strong, I'm good. Well, we can easily allow bitterness and anger and discontentment and resentment to rule over us and it not only affects us but then we are in danger of swaying many in the church to follow our example and in the end it is going to lead to joyless and graceless hearts Sheba's rebellion cost him his life In the case of false teachers within the church, their unrepentant rebellion against the Lord will not only lead to eternal death for them, but also will lead many astray to the same end. We allow resentment and anger and discontentment to to hold us and to hold us down. I'm not getting what I want. I'm feeling left out. I'm like Israel. How dare Judah you talk to me that way? You hurt my honor, whatever it may be. Or we allow false teachers to continue to teach and to lead people astray. One may ruin relationships, the other one sends people to hell. And both of them are bad. (laughs) One more than the other, but they're both really bad for a church. Now, like the people of Israel, the church is far from perfect. That's because it's filled with imperfect people. Don't be offended by that. You may look at me, and if you know me, you go, Well, yeah, that's true about you, Mark, but you know, I know you well enough, Mark. No, we're all imperfect people. How can the church have such sin in it? We're sinners, <laughs> that's what we do. It's what we do. We're imperfect, sinful people, but we're imperfect, simple people as the people of God striving to live a life of faithful obedience to our King. We realize we're not perfect. We realize our personalities clash, but we are not united because we all like one thing or another. We're united because we love Christ. We love the King. And we can set aside our resentment and our bitterness and our anger We can kick out false teachers because it's an offense to our king more than it is an offense to us. And so, heed the wise words of the woman of Abel. Get rid of false teachers who only lead others to destruction and ultimately to eternal destruction. And heed, even in their imperfection, (laughs) Israel fleeing Abel, or fleeing Sheba, realizing, realizing their problem. <laughs> that their bitterness and anger against David is not going to lead to anything good. Now, there's still other issues, obviously, in the future that Israel's going to have to deal with. But in this case, in this case, they fled falsehood. They fled in unrepentant rebellion, rebel, and they followed David, the king. And so Israel has its issues, and Sheba's rebellion brings consequences upon the nation. But David is not innocent in this affair. This all began years earlier when David lingered too long on the site of Bathsheba, and even now, in this moment he is facing the consequences of his sins. When arriving at Jerusalem and in the middle of dealing with the news of Sheba's rebellion, David has to deal with the situation of his concubines. Now, you've heard me say, like when you're reading a chapter and you see, like, this is really weird. You're talking about a rebellion and then there's the concubines and then there's rebellion and then Joab kills Amasa, which doesn't really shock us, right? And then, and then there's more rebellion. And then all of a sudden, there's these, official, these officials, this list of officials. Okay, so what's going on? Why is this jump from one thing to another? And how is it all tied together? Well, as he's dealing with the rebellion, and he's now having to deal with these concubines. Remember, these are the same concubines in which Absalom slept with in the sight of all Israel. And they are the same quote-unquote wives which the prophet Nathan prophesied about after David, David when he killed Uriah. Nathan came to David and said, you are that man. These are innocent women in the sense that they had nothing to do with David's sin. Nothing. And yet, these women are deeply affected. For David could no longer go into them because they had been violated by his son. But he couldn't and he shouldn't throw them out of his household because that would be cruel and unjust. And so they lived the life of a widow, never having that intimacy with David or any other man again. They died childless. And though he cared... And provided for them for the rest of their lives, they never knew their king intimately again. David's sin affects the relationship of his people with him. Another consequence of David's sin is seen in Joab. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Joab, he's the commander of David's army. Or at least it was until David appointed the traitor, Amasa, to take over. We aren't told why David makes this decision. That's the frustrating thing about the Bible sometimes, right? It doesn't give us an exact answer. We can have conjecture. We can go, well, maybe, but we're not specifically told why David makes this change. But it's obvious that Joab isn't happy about it. And once again, Joab takes matters into his own hands, just like he did with Abner years earlier. And he murders Amasa. If we go back to the beginning of this drama, we see that things begin to go bad between Joab and David when David commands him to kill Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And since that time, Joab has disobeyed David and even publicly rebuked him for mourning Absalom's death. In other words, Joab has no fear of David. And there's no indication that David addresses him face-to-face for what he's done. In fact, the closing verses tell us that Joab once again became commander of David's David's army, as if nothing, nothing really happened. He commits murder, and David just puts him back in command. Now, we've said this a number of times. David then, on his deathbed, turns to his son Solomon and says, basically, kill Joab. Don't let his hair grow, uh, turn gray. I think is how how it's phrased, which is a way of saying get rid of him. He's not a good man to have on your side. That's for the day that we go through First and Second Kings. We do know though that David didn't forget again Joab's continued diso- disobedience, and Joab is ultimately let's just say that. Joab is ultimately responsible for his own decisions and what he does. He will pay for it in the end, but David is not innocent in this. David allows Joab to continue to do what he's doing. And the question is always asked if the the issue with Bathsheba and Uriah had not occurred, would Joab be in the position that he's in? Again, we're not told because it's pointless in the end to sit there and think too long about it. What we are told is Joab will will face the ultimate consequences and in this case, now David is facing the consequences for allowing Joab to continue to do What he's doing. And so it is with us who rebel against the Lord's true anointed king. David was a man after God's own heart. And though he was the pinnacle of faithfulness that Israel throughout the rest of its history would strive to have again and strive to follow, he was sinful and imperfect. Now, today we have the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ, who is the better David. He's the better king. He is the perfect and sinless king. Now, last chapter, we saw David forgive and show mercy to those who were repentant of the rebellion against him. Today, we see how unrepentant rebellion against the king leads to the, de- to the death of those who rebel and affects all of those who are part of the kingdom. And so it is with Christ. He shows, Christ shows forgiveness and mercy to those who were once his enemies. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still rebellious enemies of him, he died for us. He died for us. But Christ will also punish those who are unrepentant in their rebellion. Those who refuse to turn to Him. Now, this is really vital because if we think as believers, there are times in our life, right, where we do rebel against the Lord, even as His children. We sin against Him. We go against His commands. We disobey Him. The, the difference between unrepentant and repentance is when we sin, do we wish we hadn't? Are we striving to be more obedient to Christ? to not sin anymore? Or do we throw up our hands and say, you know what, it's totally fine. It doesn't matter whether I sin or not. God's going to forgive me. So I can continue to sin and do what I want because God's a loving God and he's going to forgive me. There's a big difference between those two types of people. Christ saves those who are repentant and he punishes those who are unrepentant those who refused to turn to him, those who refused to seek his forgiveness and his mercy, which is freely given. And those people who are unrepentant may find physical death as a consequence, but they will surely find eternal death. In Matthew chapter 25, 31 through 46, we're not gonna read it. You can go back and look at it. This is, Jesus speaking of the final judgment, and it's described as a great separation. So, if you're familiar with the Bible, you, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. All the nations are going to be gathered before Christ as he sits on his glorious throne, and he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. Now, the sheep are those who father and live for the king, and he gives to them their inheritance of eternal life and Christ himself. Now, this is where the danger of legalism falls in, right? Why, why are they following him? Why are they living for him? Is because th- he's already saved them. He loves them. And they realize that, and they want to live for him. They want to do what he desires. They want to follow his desires and his passions and not their own. That is the sheep. But then you've got the goats, who were good and moral. They did great things. They did good things. But they did it out of their selfish gain and not for the glory and the honor of Christ their king because Christ is not their king. They have followed their own desires, their own passions, and they have lived for themselves. And Christ will look at them and this is when they say, well, when didn't I do these things for you, the Lord? And he says, Get away from me. I never knew you. Because your heart does not belong to me. That's the Mark version of that. And so Christ will send them away from his presence into eternal punishment, into eternal death. And this is the lesson of this chapter. Our society likes to think that rebellion, sinful rebellion against Christ, is no big deal. (laughs) All roads lead to heaven, right? And even within the church, Within the church, we tend to see sin as a personal issue that really only affects the church if it's a leader of the church, if the pastor or an elder falls and fails because they're public and they're out front. And don't even get me started on false teachers within the church. I've done a lot of sermons on that and um, you hopefully know my feelings on, on false teachers. There are consequences to be faced with all sin and all repentant rebellion against the Lord's anointed king, jesus christ even as believers when we fail when we fail to follow him there are consequences to our sins but not eternal consequences praise the lord right and though we here at elm creek we're concerned about the transient the here and now consequences of sin how is this affecting you how is this affecting your work how is this affecting your family how is this affecting your relationship with god right now We're concerned about those things, but we are especially concerned about the eternal consequences of rebellion. And so we must hear not only with our ears, but also with our hearts, that Christ will punish those who were unrepentant rebels against him. So this is the call. If you have not repented of your sins, ever, you need to do it today because you do not know what tomorrow will bring, let alone whether you will live or die on the way home today. Your eternal life or your eternal death are on the line. Now, if you have repented, if you have experienced the glorious mercy and grace and forgiveness of the King, then as your pastor, this is what I tell you, stand confident before his throne, and know that you will never be taken from him, ever. How do I know this? Because he says so. You will never be removed from the love of God if you are a child of his. So my confidence is not found on the fact that I have a degree or that I'm standing up front and I'm saying this. I am confident in this because God says it and God is always faithful and he's always true and he's always right. Always. Always always and if he says mark you're my son your confidence is in me and not in yourself i go thank you jesus (laughs) thank you that i come before you as a sinful broken man as your pastor imperfect in all of his ways speaking the truth of god hoping beyond hope that anything that is from me is ignored and all the truth of christ And his word is heard for you as a believer to stand firm in him, to stand firm before and confidently before his throne, knowing that we will always be his and we will never be removed from his great love again, not because you and I are sinless, but because he has forgiven all of our sins. He has forgiven all of our sinful rebellion against him past, present, and future. In the previous chapter, David forgives and shows mercy to those who, though they rebelled against his rule, repented of their rebellion. Next week, we're going to see that David avenges the wrongs done to the Gibeonites, a group of Gentiles who were under a covenant of peace with David. David is a good king. And his life reveals the goodness that God has done in him. But David is not good enough. He is not enough. No president, no politician, no pastor, no elder, no parent is good enough to save us. Only in and through Christ, who is the better anointed king, can true and lasting forgiveness, mercy, grace, joy, peace, eternal life be found. And so as we come to the table this morning, as we take communion, if you are a believer, you stand, or you sit, I guess you sit, (laughs) firm in your confidence that Christ has saved you. And so give him the praise and the glory and the honor that is due him. He went to the cross. He paid the price for my sinful rebellion. And because of that, now I am saved. Praise God, even though I am imperfect in all of my ways. And that it's through him that those who are repentant find and receive our internal inheritance of eternal life in him. Give Him the praise and glory and honor. And if you are unrepentant, take this time, search your heart, expose your heart to Him and say, forgive me. If you confess it with your mouth, you believe in your heart, He will save you. He will save you. So when you are ready, we do open communion here. You don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're part of the family of God, you're welcome to join us at the table. When I say goodbye, well, however I walk off the stage, you see that, go ahead and form a line. You grab the cup, you grab the bread, you come back to the seats, and then together as God's family, we will take communion and remember, remember what Christ did for us, for his glory, for his goodness. So whenever you're ready, go ahead and make your way to the table.